When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, I'm Reggie Williams, founder and CEO of Ambrosia for Heads. And with me, I have Jake Payne, our editor-in-chief. And together, this is our What's the Headline podcast. Uh, you know, sadly, and this is becoming a very, very familiar refrain in April, we're going to start this off with a celebration and a tribute of yet another hip-hop legend that we lost. Um, that's three in three weeks. Starting with DMX on April 9th, Black Rob on April 17th. And now uh, we lost Shock G just a couple of days ago from Digital Underground. Um, real name is Greg Jacobs. Uh, a lot of people knew him as Humpty Hump. Uh, he is a person who brought the funk to hip hop. I think in a lot of ways um, and is, is not really appreciated for that pioneering role. Like, you know, we, we've talked about you and I about Eric Sermon being one of the pioneers of G-Funk. When you think about it, you know, the Parliament and Funkadelic sam- uh, and uh, Zap samples that he used. But Digital Underground fused funk in a way that was just seamless for hip hop. And, you know, Shock being a multi-instrumental playing artist, uh, you know, play the drums, play the keys, was a huge fan of, of Prince, of, of Funkadelic, and infused that in the music. But, you know, I know that Digital Underground was a little bit before your era of hip hop, but you know, did you did you get when did you get into their music and how did it impact you? You know, it's it's crazy that you ask that. I um I recently guested <clears throat> on a podcast for my friend Andres Tardio, who is um you know an editor at Genius, and on the side he's doing a podcast on songs that shaped your life. And I had this vivid memory of either what was late '96 or early '97 of being at a you know, junior high school dance. Um, so that's how far back we go. And it was the first time I heard the Humpty dance, which is funny in a number of levels, like that record at a, you know, preteen adolescent dance is funny. Also the fact that it was 96, 97, that song was not played out, but was, uh, you know, six or seven years late. But I, I talked about it because I remember that moment and this was before Shazam, this was before, a lot of things. And, and, you know, I knew I had a cursory understanding of Tupac, but to hear that song um, was one of those stop you dead in your tracks moments. And out of that, you know, out of figuring out who it was, what it was, I bought all of those albums, you know, at the time that I was building my relationship with hip hop. But, you know, like you said, I came a little bit later um, and, and got to see Digital Underground through um, over its you know, final 10 years or so as a group. But for you, I mean, you lived it in real time and, and you and I talk a lot about music and you've always been one of the biggest advocates of DU that I know. Um, so for you, what was what was your genesis like? Man, um, that's sex package. Well, first of all, the, the first thing was do what you like. And mm-hmm. uh, unbeknownst to me until recently, they only had a single deal, which makes sense. A lot of times, especially back then with independent labels, they would sign a single deal. And if the single sold, you know, X amount of units specified in the contract, 
they would move forward with an option. Sometimes it was an EP, sometimes it was another single, and other times it was an album. So DU had a single deal contingent on the sales of their first one and uh, Do What You Like sold over, I think the threshold was 80,000 copies that they had in the agreement. Um, you know, it was a cool song. It was, first of all, it was really unorthodox. It was like eight minutes long or something like that. Um, you know, in a world where most songs were three to four minutes, you know, we're still in a third verse world back then, you know, now it's two and done. But um, Do What You Like was cool. It was, uh, it was a hit in inner hip hop circles. And, you know, back then this is 88 or so, you know, hip hop is still far from crossovers very much. There is no underground because all hip hop is technically underground. Mm -hmm. um, so hip, uh, it was well received and on the East Coast too, you know, there was, also, you know, it was just a, a, when I think about it, a completely different era where it was just rap music, you know, people didn't like break it up, at, you know, in terms of like, you know, this is West Coast, this is East Coast, it was just all hip hop. Um, and so that song was cool, but when Humpty Dance came out, you know, the second single, it was an explosion. It was monstrous. It was crossover, went all the way to number 11 on the Billboard charts, um, which was gigantic. Only Vanilla Ice's Ice Ice Baby had what was bigger that year for rap. Wow. But the thing about it is, um, you know, it was at a time where commercial success often was equated with selling out. So you had, you know, your Hammers, you had Tone Loke, you had Young MC, you had Vanilla Ice, who people kind of looked down upon because of their, their commercial success. But DU was never like that. You know, they always transcended, um, they transcended any kind of criticism based on their popularity. It never, ever sounded like they were compromising their sound. Um, and, you know, I think, I don't think they get a lot of enough credit for that. That's a really good point. And, you know, this week there were things about shock that I knew and had forgotten. I think one of the interesting things is that like Tupac, his roots are in the East Coast. Um, you know, he was a New York native who kind of came of age. He was a child of divorce um, and came of age in, in Tampa Bay, Florida, which is, you know, I think oft forgotten in Digital Underground's roots, you know, sort of like Two Live Crew being this 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 act out of L.A. that later finds itself in Miami. Two Live Crew had roots in Florida and then found themselves in Oakland, California, and I didn't realize this either. You know, you mentioned Do What You Like as a Tommy Boy single. And, and that was very much Tommy Boy's formula of take a single as a, as a, you know, prototype, see if it works, if it works. I mean, that's how we got De La Soul. That's why we didn't get a RZA album in 1991 or, you know, Prince Rakim. But they got a single deal with Makola Records, if I'm saying that right, or Makola which is the same label that put out Two Live Crew, the same label um, that put out NWA and the Posse, the Feel a Fresh Crew with the DOC. Like, and it's that label that in the Straight Outta Compton movie, you see Jerry Heller working at it. It's really his origins. And that's crazy. And I didn't, you know, the person behind Digital Underground um, on the management tip is this guy, Antron Gregory, who I knew as a kid, because I'd see his name on the back of early Tupac albums. And I didn't realize that he was the executive kind of responsible for both in the early days. And that's so interesting that, you know, later, you know, obviously Pac and Digital Underground, but NWA, that they were all kind of in the same ecosystem. I, I never realized that. And, 
you're absolutely right. Like Dre gets a lot of credit for funk. Um, but, you know, Sons of the P, uh, you know, Digital Underground's, I think, second full length album comes out a year before The Chronic, almost two years before. And it's just so interesting that, you know, years later, I'll, I'll listen to a Sly Stone record or, you know, Parliament and Funkadelic or Bootsy, whatever else. And I'll make the connection then of like going in reverse of like, wow, I know this groove because of Shock G and Digital Underground. And it's just, um, you're absolutely right. I think that he is the undersung hero of merging hip hop with funk. Yeah, you know, and also merging rap music with uh, real instrumentation. Like, so samples and instrumentation, I should say. So Freaks of the Industry, you know, um, samples, uh, Donna Summers, uh, love, uh, love to love you, baby. Um, mm-hmm. and, but he, he injects that keyboard into it too, making it more musical. Um, you know, they were really a dense musical group. Um, you know, I don't think they get a lot of credit for how conceptual they were too. You know, mm-hmm. just the whole notion of sex packets and, you know, the theme that it, that, that it played throughout the album. But then also bringing in Humpty. You know, having a complete alter ego persona that, you know, long before Doom, they had people coming in and and impersonating Humpty so that he could be there while Shock was there and perpetuating this notion that Humpty and Shock were two different people. And, you know, the goofy nose and and, and glasses and the Groucho Marx thing going on, you know, um, it was at a time where rap music, you mentioned N.W.A., you know, Run DMC was still around and it had taken a turn away from the days of Grandmaster Flash when it was really about, you know, showmanship and stuff like that and it was much more serious and straightforward. And D- DU re-injected that sense of, you know, uh, levity and showmanship into rap. Yeah, I mean, the Humpty Hump character is fascinating to me. And I think there's a lot of people that know who Humpty Hump is but don't know who Groucho Marx is. You know what I mean? Like, that was another thing, I think, from my era to later see the Marx Brothers movies and go, oh, damn, like the cigar and the, you know, and that really was a, you know, I was reading a great interview that Keith Murphy did in 2010 for Vibe. And, you know, Humpty talks about going to a weird store in Berkeley, California, seeing these, you know, glasses and noses and, and being baffled that the nose was brown and buying it. And it became this prop. I think your comparison to Doom is amazing because um, that's all I kept thinking about too of like, yo, what if Doom grabs another mask? Like, hip-hop, as as we see it and perceive it, is different. And in that same interview, you know, um, Shock talks about how the Hump character, first and foremost, was his uncle, this guy named Tony Red, who used to step to women with these, like, crazy lines like that. But he said it's an amalgamation of Bootsy Collins, Roddy Dangerfield, Morris Day, and Slick Rick. Um, with, I think, a little bit of that Groucho, you know, using the mask. And that's just so crazy to me that, you know, at a time when rap videos and MTV were really kind of on the same level and a video could be a juggernaut for a group that came out of nowhere, um, it was lightning in a bottle. And I think in many ways, you know, we can both think of artists that are, you know, prisoners of their hits. You know, I, I remember talking to OC one time and he told me that he he's sick and tired of talking about time's up like you know he's made other great joints very true and I think the Humpty Dance became such a breakout record for this group that 
cross them over, you know, to people that weren't even buying rap records that I think in a lot of ways, Digital Underground lived in the shadow of that success. And, you know, one of the things that I've come to realize, and, and Shock was very open about this, um, I think the loss of Tupac, you know, which became his, his star pupil and Digital Underground's, you know, great kind of protege for a time. Um, and then also just not being able to have the creative control that he deserved, I think, tormented him a lot. And he has been very honest um, with the media and, and with speaking appearances that, that drugs played into it. And it's interesting, too, because you mentioned George Clinton, where you look at a Sly Stone and that issue of these creative geniuses also dealing with, um, you know, some substance demons, you know, or, or things that habits that are hard to put down. It's really interesting to me. And, um, you know, obviously, I don't I don't know if you've read something I haven't, but we don't know the terms of of what happened with shock this week, other than, you know, I believe it was a hotel in uh, Tampa. But it's it's just very sad for me to imagine, um, you know, that a, a creative genius goes out like that. Yeah, you know, uh, 57 years old is, is not old, um, you know, and, you know, I, I wasn't as familiar with the substance, substances issues, uh, but now that you mention it, uh, I do recall. And you think about X and, you know, how, you know, how much that plagued him and, you know, the, the allegations that it played a part in his, his death as well. Like uh, you start to think about Prince and Michael Jackson and Whitney Houston and so many of our legends that we've lost um, due to uh, substances, you know, it's, it's a real, um, really sad thing. And um, you wonder if that's part of the price of fame or price of that kind of artistry is the, the kind of pathos that comes with it, that, that needs that kind of medication to kind of soothe, uh, soothe the pain that, that's underlying it, you know, so it's a really tough thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. But you talk about, you know, him being trapped in that Humpty persona or, or overshadowing things. You know, think about Eminem and Slim Shady and, you know, how that, I think that was something that weighed on him as well. And one of the things that I saw was that the label kind of pushed uh, Shock to continue to, to lean into that Humpty persona because of its commercial success. And, you know, I would think that for an artist like that, that's a very stifling kind of um, thing and, and very makes it very difficult for him to like really put forth his best, best art, artistic effort. And, you know, even like, you know, as much of a persona as that was, I think Shock G, the artist was just a, just a small part of his dimensions. You know, um, I saw in that same article that you mentioned, the vibe one, that he used to, or actually a different article, um, he used to uh, look at Stokely Carmichael and, and, and Malcolm X speeches um, throughout the day before he got on stage. And, you know, that's not something that really came out in DU music, you know, um, being in the Bay with the Black Panthers roots and all that that, that did and, and affiliating with Tupac, who did inject a lot of that consciousness into his music later on. It's surprising to me that given shocks uh interest in that that it, it didn't make its way out into the, the d music at least the, the music that i know yeah you know i did a lot of reading and, and one of the things um you know tommy boy records was where digital underground found their success 
And Monica Lynch, you know, I consider truly, you know, the greatest A&R and, and the person after her, Dante Ross, I mean, they're hand in hand to me. Um, but Tommy Boy made stars out of artists that were very talented, but not necessarily um, something that it might be packageable to traditional labels like your, you know, Republics and Mercuries and, you know, MCA, so on and so forth. And, you know, we've we've watched a lot in recent years of how Tommy Boy on one hand has this incredible catalog and introduces all of these great artists, Queen Latifah, De La, Naughty by Nature. I can go on and on and on. But there's also this, this struggle, this dichotomy, because once those artists catch, the label very much, I think, it figures out how to replicate that success. And, you know, Digital Underground, like you said, didn't come on the scene on the conscious tip. It was more of a like a party, showmanship, funk groove, all the things that you're saying. But I think that Shock, from what I've read, wanted to take it in a direction of that, you know, very much along the lines of what has historically been going on in Oakland, California, and the label resisted. And it's interesting to me, um, you know, I, I read this, um, I read in that, that same article that after he had placed I Get Around with Tupac, um, and Tupac had kind of been shopped around Tommy Boy and nothing happened there, he ends up being you know, an early artist at Interscope, shocks since I get around to the label, much to their chagrin of like, yo, this is exactly the kind of thing that we want you to be doing. Because at this point, you know, it's three years after Humpty Dance and shock, you know, said in the vibe interview was basically a fuck you to the label. The whole reason he showed them was because there were meetings at Tommy Boy where they allegedly said, you know what, this ex-clan public enemy stuff, it's kind of passe. We're going in a different direction. And you can't do that with an artist because they know what they want to say. And I think they know what the people want to receive. And, and thank goodness, thank God that Digital Underground had Pac, had Saphir, had, you know, the loonies um, and these extensions of the group to carry on that message, which I often think doesn't get stated enough. I think people make the Tupac connection. I think they attribute him to being a dancer in the group, which, you know, Shock has corrected at times. Yes, he did dance on, on a couple of tours. But he was more a roadie and even shock had said that Tupac's association at that point as a roadie was probably beneath him as a talent. And you and I have spent a lot of time, you know, through the website talking about, wow, at a young age, Tupac already showed himself out to be. So I love the fact that in that family tree, you have, you know, a strong trunk in Digital Underground. But it's a shame that people didn't get a chance to focus on that music that they had, that shock had. Yeah, you know, you mentioned you mentioned Pac a few times. So he he debuted with same same song. Um, that was his first verse uh, that the public heard on record. You know, and we talk about those breakout performances. You and I have talked about it with you know uh, with Nas with Main Source and uh, I forget who we were talking about last week. Um, oh, with a Red Man with Headbanger on EPMD. Pac was another one of those standouts where you're like, yo, who is that? You know, everyone knew DU from their big singles, but Pac came on. He had a very different style then, too. It was much more um, sing-songy, happy-go-lucky. It was before the, 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 the deeper, like, you know, resonant, bombastic kind of Pac bellows that we, we later got. Um, so it was cool to kind of see his style evolve from that, too. Uh, but, yeah, you, you know, 
clearly Shaq believed in Pop in a way that no one else did in order to give him that first shot. And then, like you said, I think part of what is slept on with him is his production skills too. And in addition to having the affiliation with these artists, he produced them. And so producing I Get Around, which is arguably Pop's biggest hit and still uh, a timeless production. When you, when you hear those keyboard flourishes, you can kind of hear that digital underground, you know, uh, connection to it. And yeah. it sounds obviously with, with, with a shock and money bees verse, um, it sounds very much like a digital underground record that Pac is on rather than the other way around to me. Um, but, you know, he flipped it differently on so many tiers, which until recently, I didn't even know that he had produced. It's been one of my favorite Tupac songs. Uh, it, it may be my favorite Tupac song ever. Um, and it's so different from, you know, I guess it's, it does have like uh, uh, some like Stevie Wonder, kind of like harmonica and and some samples that like that give away that Shock G influence. But it's very much um, in sync with the rest of the album and, and, and different from the, the other DU stuff that you hear. But that was an outlet, I would suspect, for him to kind of vicariously be able to have that conscious rap because that's one of Pac's deepest. It's so funny that you say that. I mean, Tupac is my favorite artist, you know, in, in probably in all music, but certainly in hip hop. And, you know, the reason why I'm sitting here talking to you and the reason why you and I have so much history together. And I also didn't realize that that was a Shock G production. I don't know why in my head, I always thought it was Easy Mo B or you know, somebody else. And that's so crazy because um, you look at the Humpty Dance, you look at um, that, there's this level of bass and, you know, it's a, it's a heavy, hearty um, song, but it's one of those records. I forget, I think it was Bastards of the Party. It was one of the documentaries on the street gangs of the Bloods and they play it at the end and it's just so guttural. And now it all makes sense that that would come out of shock too. And I think that from what I've read, it meant a lot to shock that as Tupac became this breakout superstar by the mid nineties, that he was still, you know, working with his mentor. And I think that's something that we love in hip hop, you know, when Nas goes to large professor for a beat or, you know, I mean, on and on and on, but they obviously had a, just an incredible chemistry together. Yeah. So what was your favorite, you know, what were some of your favorite DU songs? I love the same song. And that was one of them. And it's so funny that you worded that really well, too, because I think of the video, which on one hand is kind of a goofy video because the song was used in the movie Nothing But Trouble, which I don't even know if I've ever seen. Um, So but you have all of these actors in lots of makeup, but then you have the group and they're performing. It was probably one of those things where like the movie studio paid for half the video or all of it. But what's so interesting is Tupac used the moment doesn't he come in and kind of like a, a a throne you know like they they walk him in and he's got a scepter and he's like he positioned himself as the shit and it is a breakout moment because even the way they turn over the mic to him it's like Tupac go ahead and rock and yet I think he only gets maybe like 10 bars you know but you knew his name when the record was over absolutely he made it he, he sees the moment for sure you know um, so that's one oh, and, and to answer your question though again and this this has to do with my generational thing because we've talked about the hits and um friday i was driving around and mr c on rock the bells played uh 
We Got More, which was on the Don't Be a Menace soundtrack, which was, I think, a soundtrack that's as good, if not better, than the movie. But Shock did a joint with the Loonies, which has this, like, incredible flute sample that plays, I believe it's in the movie, it plays on a few points on the soundtrack, which is a great one. And Shock does this thing that's like, it's, it's, it's like a snake charmer. Like, it's a very you know, um, seductive rhythm that he uses. And then he would do that, get that very nasal humpy sound. And he would choose like, one of my favorite lyrics ever is like, I like my oatmeal lumpy because it's not a cool rap lyric, but it's a phenomenal rap lyric because it's, it's a non sequitur, it's mundane, but it's something you're not gonna get anywhere else. And he was still six years later doing that. And that was after the point where I believe, you know, Shock and Digital Underground were not in the major system but he showed um, that he got it like that. And so I'll give it up to that. And I was so touched to hear it on radio um, because it's a little bit of a deeper cut. What about you? Yeah. You know, so two of my favorite, well, I love, I I love the Sex Packers album and I Mm -hmm. made one of my favorites, which was uh, Freaks of the Industry. I just Mm -hmm. think that's such an underrated song. Like the groove is so amazing. It's also another eight minute joint. Uh, he tells a, a really intricate story. And, um, you know, I, I think that that song was, was really slept on, but I think two of my favorites are really deep cuts. Um, one is Tie the Knot, which is on This Is an EP release. And, you know, it's gaggy. It starts off like, you know, them kind of screaming off key and everything, but then like it, it, it shifts into this like, like ill chord progression with the keys. Uh, he, he just had a way of like layering on like, you know, high ends of the keys with the bass, which is, you know, uh, a huge part of that G-Funk thing. Um, they kind of weave in though, I don't know what it's called, but the wedding song too with that, right? Yeah, like- yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that one is ill to me. And then, uh, you know, the body hat syndrome, which is one that's not talked about much, but I think the best DU Tupac collaboration is on that. And that's what's up with the love. Um you know, and actually that, when I think about it, that is a conscious, that's much more of a conscious song. Um, it is, you know, talking about, um, you know, people dying, um, you know, black people dying um, from like, you know, terrible conditions and things like that. So that that's one where, and maybe that's why I gravitated to it, towards it so much because it is really um, visceral and, um, and real. So that's probably my favorite DU song. Uh, I encourage anyone who has not you know, checked out that that project to spend some time with that song. At least. You put me up on that one. The other one that I got to say is The Way We Swing, which I loved. And that was another case where I knew that record. It It's so catchy. It 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 works. And I think on Sex Packets, it comes on right after Humpty Dance. So, you know, 12-year-old, 13-year-old Jake would play that and then it would go right into the a little, you know, a little bit more. And it's funny how you learn the song after your favorite song so well. But it was years later, listening to, you know, a Jimi Hendrix Band of Gypsies album, and I hear the derivative of that, that groove, that dun 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 And yeah, I mean, but I want to ask you too, you mentioned the Prince connection. And I think Tell me if I'm wrong, because, you know, you're the biggest Prince fan I know, but a joint like Kiss You Back. I mean, talk to me about how that grabs from another area of the funk that's different from Hendrix, P-Funk, Sly Stone. Well, I mean, Kiss You Back is uh, is, is that knee deep sample, you know, same as uh, De La's, um, um, you know, Me, Myself and I. Self and I. 
Yeah, they, they flipped it just a little bit differently. Um, but, you know, Shock actually worked with Prince on Love Sign, um, which is when you listen to it, uh, again, sounds very much like a DU production, but sounds very aligned with Prince because, to your point, DU was rooted in, in Prince. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I hear Prince, I hear um, Slash Stone, I hear George Clinton, I hear all those things when I listen to DU. And so, you know, um, I, I hear it throughout, but yeah. It's interesting, you know, one of the things I read is that that collaboration um, with Prince came out in like 98, right? It was late 90s. And Shock had submitted that to Prince in like 93. Never heard anything back. They'd never met. And when it finally appeared, it was exactly the way he sent it which I think is just an interesting um, dynamic between two geniuses. You know what I mean? Like, no, I'm going to take it as you, as you, as you sent it to me, it just wasn't ready at that time. And shock even said they had a chance to meet in a club in Soho. And I think it was a brief conversation, but it was one about their music together and kind of a, a salute between comrades. Yeah. That's amazing, man. It's really amazing. Um, and apparently he had solo albums out too, which I have not listened to, but I'm going to dig in. Have you, have you heard any of his solo material? I did. And this is a, an embarrassing admission, but I've, I've reached a point in my career after 20 years. I am convinced that I have a Shock G interview um, around the time I was working at All Hip Hop, which was between 2002 and 2007, but I can't find it. And the internet is a cruel, cruel place where a lot of great work doesn't exist anymore. And my, uh, my cassette tapes are not with me right now. They're in storage. But I, I hope to find that because I'm, I'm pretty sure that Shock and I spoke for one of his albums. Um, and I know I edited a lot of other people's Shock G interviews. And it was interesting in doing this research, um, you know, I, I spoke a little bit about the substance stuff. What's interesting to me is Shock, you know, his, his two things that he was interested in and that he was using to create were acid and ecstasy, um, you know, which a lot of artists, especially during the 90s and 2000s, used. And one of the things that I found where other artists saw this talent kind of wallowing away in post-Tupac, you know, passing away and all these other things going on, leaving the label system, and they would give him projects because he had this energy of just like, give me something to do, give me something to create. So Digital Underground put out a lot of joints on Jake Records, no relation to me. But I found out that that was run by a Steely Dan producer that was just the biggest fan of Shock. And the other thing I read is when it came to his solo albums, which you just brought up, Michael Concepcion, who's, you know, the, the mastermind of we're all in the same gang, kind of reached out to Shock and was like, yo, Digital Underground, you've put it to bed several times and you keep reviving it. Why don't you do this? Because I know there's music in you and let me push you in that direction which I thought was so interesting. And I want to go back and listen to those albums. I mean, this month, I continue to hear cars driving by my place, blasting DMX. I continue to listen to Black Rob. And, and my hope is, um, same as Doom, you know, that people listen to this art. And if you're not that familiar, or you have a cursory understanding, or you loved it then, but it's been a while, go back and appreciate it. Because that is the sense that I get um you know from Gregory Jacobs that he wanted he just wanted his music to be received and 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 with that Reggie there's one other thing I want to add I, I want to I think it's worth noting that there were people that really you know rap peers that really put him on a pedestal in recent years kind of as the group had phased out and 
you know, one is a friend of the show, Murs, who brought him, I believe, um, on a tour for the end of the beginning, the Def Jooks era, and then brought him out again on paid dues. And I love, I love to hear that. And I know how much that means to Murs to put his heroes on. And I recently watched an interview with Count Base D, who has ties to Tampa, and says, you know, his style was fathered by by Shock G. He was just a few years ahead of him. And I, I just I take a lot of value in that. And uh, you know, one of the things that I really enjoyed in recent years, kind of post the group, Prince Paul made this joint called Baby Elephant. I know I've sent you joints on it, and they had Bernie Worrell and different people, um, you know, who's who's P Funk and Talking Heads. And there's a joint on there called Plainfield. That is Prince Paul and Shock G, and it's very, very melodic and, and fun and interesting. And I think there's a whole host of digital underground Shock G records that myself included haven't heard that's out there for the enjoyment um, that we didn't realize were there, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm, I, did, I didn't know that um, Count Base D connection. Uh, interesting. I literally just listened to him yesterday. Um, oh, wow. Fits. Um, but to your point, yeah, I'm going to dig into the catalog. And one thing I've been trying to be intentional about recently is I have all this stuff digitized from, like, you know, CD collections and stuff like that in my iTunes. And unfortunately, with a lot of material from that era, you can't get it because, you, like you said, the Internet is a cruel thing, but also the, the music business and the rights issues, which have kept De La Soul off DSPs, you know, another time before you act. Um, have, have really impacted other catalogs too. So sometimes catalog is not there at all. Sometimes it's like sporadic, but fortunately DU is there, DMX is there. So I've been really intentionally trying to listen to the versions on Spotify and Apple Music instead of my own because the artists will get paid for that. You know, uh, typically artists did not get paid um, once someone bought an album, you know, it, it was a one, one and done kind of thing. You know, you bought the recording, that was it. They'd get paid if their publishing was used on the radio or songs were used in films or commercials or things like that. But the record, you know, as long as you listen to it on your CD, they didn't get like repeat for that. But now that there are DSPs, artists do get paid. It's not a ton, but it's something. And, you know, I got to imagine that like DMX's family, with the huge spike in, in sales he's had is going to get a decent check from that. I really want to be mindful of that and support these artists and their estates in my listening. I love that point. And especially, I mean, you and I bought these albums, you know, at different points in our lives. It's, it's interesting, you know, Doom's mm Food album on Rhyme Sayers slipped into the top 200 about a month ago. And that's, I mean, now that, charts are correlated to streaming that's so interesting to me because that was never an album that reached billboard and doom wasn't kind of a billboard artist at that point i think later on with danger doom and some of the other things he did with lex records and yeah i mean i want to see that and and again it it beckons consideration if you do that um not only does it support the family but it creates major music media to stop and pay homage and pay recognition and yeah, I mean, Digital Underground deserves all the love. So word to that song you were talking about with Pac. Yeah. So rest in peace to Shock G. Um, our condolences to his friends, family, and many, many fans amongst uh, which we were amongst ourselves, you know. Um, so as we were mourning his loss, uh, hip hop was celebrating the life of DMX yesterday. Um, at Barclays, uh, Barclays Arena. I actually drove by 
the arena for a bit yesterday before everything uh, got going and saw the tons of barricades. The barricades extended, um, you know, up, you know, Atlantic and and several other um, avenues around it, and for a long uh, stretch, like it was very clear that they anticipated huge crowds. We saw tons of you know police cars and things like that, but not to you know be disruptive or anything. Really, just to kind of keep everything orderly and organized. Um, but then watching the ceremony itself, which started, you know, a few hours late and Swiss actually joked about that, about how, uh, having DMX up where he is now, they got some powerful allies, uh, up there and looking out for them. And he's already like playing jokes on them, like, you know, being like, you know, multiple hours late for the show, but, you know, actually, you know, X's casket arrived on time and, 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 and grand and like true, like grand, style you know uh, they had a monster truck that looked like it was probably 15 feet high in terms of where the, the bed sat bright red casket you know uh, spoked wheels um i think it was long live dmx uh on, painted on it um and you know really followed by a caravan that seemed to be never ending of motorcycles you know um you know blaring you know, his music of course but it started, the procession started in Yonkers, which is about 15, 20 miles away, and made its way all the way to Barclays. But did, did you catch this, the service? I didn't watch the service, but I paid attention to the timeline, and I saw clips, I saw what you're describing, and it, I knew you and I had talked about it, you know, on a text uh, 10 days ago or so. I knew this would be um, a big deal, but I didn't foresee it being the event that it became. I mean, this reminded me i mean obviously nipsey had a huge um thing at the staples center after his passing but i think the new york element and the motorcade element reminded me a lot of of march of 97 with big yeah especially especially through brooklyn you know um the town of yonkers had volunteered to do it outdoors at their um racetrack and i'm not sure what happened with that why why it didn't happen but I hear there's talk of them like doing something more lasting, like a statue or maybe even a street named after DMX, which I think would be really dope. But the ceremony itself, even though it took like, it to, I think it was like three and a half hours later, it started around 7.30 and I thought it had been slated for four initially. Mm. Once it got started, it was it was not long. It was about an hour. You know, some some services over the years have gone really long. I think Aretha Franklin was like five hours or something like that. Um, but they kept it really, really intimate, you know, uh, and I know it's strange to say that in an arena like Barclays, but that's how it felt. You know, it was, to my understanding, limited to family and friends indoors because of, you know, observing like the COVID protocols. Um, and really, uh, it could have been a ton of people speaking, but it was really people who were very closely connected to him, either personally or professionally. Um, there have been some rumors about Kanye West performing, and when I heard that, I was skeptical. I didn't know what to expect, and I didn't know why Kanye. You know, I know he and Swiss are cool, but like, you know, I didn't see a strong connection between him and DMX. But um, you know, the, the the show starts, the service starts, and you see a video of DMX with his daughter on, on a ride, and she's scared, and you know, he's reassuring her and saying, "Daddy's here." And then, uh, you know, it fades to black. And, you know, after actually a, a prayer, um, his prayer, the, the prayer is, uh, and it's listen to those words, 
because he refers to his own death and like, you know, what it would be like if he's dead and, you know, how he would view his life and stuff like that, which is just chilling uh, to, to listen to now, especially. But then you hear like the opening notes from an amazing gospel choir and it's Kanye's Sunday service uh, singing Back to Life, mm. uh, which is on their album. And every single time I hear that song, I get chills. Like I think the first time I saw it was on um, James, uh, James Corden. He had them on the plane. And, you know, he's talking to somebody and you know, Kanye, he sees Kanye sitting in coach, which would never happen. But he says something and then all of a sudden the entire plane erupts because it's the choir singing and they're interspersed with passengers. And it's just a magical moment. And I thought that it was the visuals and the entire experience that really impacted me. But man, just this choir is so amazing. And the arrangement to that song is so amazing the way they flip the words and um, but then they, they transitioned into um, uh, keep on moving. And they also, uh, you know, changed the, the words to that to make it a gospel rendition. And throughout, they, they were basically the choir for what was a true memorial service. And uh, they did Ultra Light Beam. They, they did uh, Whitney singing Jesus Loves Me uh, and, and backed that up, um, uh, you know, the vocals. It was truly amazing and Kanye conducting um I can't remember if he said anything but if he did it was minimal he was really just there to provide the music it was respectful it was tasteful and it was really really powerful so I, I think that it's things that like that that remind people of why Kanye West is the compelling figure that he is uh, you know I know that he's overshadowed a lot now by the controversy you know what he's saying you know outside of the studio and you know his his family and you know divorce and all that other stuff but at the end of the day the reason why pay, people pay attention to Kanye West the way they do is because he's a supremely talented um, individual when it comes to music and he showed it yesterday in a way that like you know can't be disputed. That's really dope. And, you know, I know that they worked together um, in the mid 2000s um, on Grand Champ, maybe, or the year of the dog again. And Kanye was somebody that Swizz had continued to allude to, on, as I think you said, with X. So I'm sure there was a personal bond there. And, you know, um, I, I love hearing that because Kanye knows how to make a moment feel epic without compromising its heart and soul and it sounds from what you're saying that that was very much the case this weekend yeah and you know in terms of the the, the speeches again they kept it really to you know close family and friends so it started off you know ex's um ex-wives came out and his ex-wife i should say and his fiance you know really just seeing the unity amongst them is pretty powerful you know i don't know what it's like behind the scenes but they showed a united front in in front of the camera which has been tremendous and it talked about like his impact on the world and how he went through a lot but he did it all for you know the people who listened to his music and then um they had his 15 children on stage and that's something that uh, in an interview um i think it was um d uh dean um had said that x had i don't i think he had never ever had all of his kids together at the same time and they had collected at the hospital, you know, with the hopes of obviously a different outcome, um, you know, but all the kids were there. 
but seeing them all on stage together was very powerful with their moms and you know quite a few of them spoke uh some of them even rapped um but you know really you know, paid tribute to their father so that was powerful the Nas came out and spoke and you know he, he you know Nas is always very concise with his words but he talked about the impact they had when, when making belly and how you know DMX had not had his first album come out before he that he was starring in that role and but Nas said there was something about him where you knew you know he was going to be a star and X had this moment where he realized that his whole life was about to change after this and Nas just talked about just knowing him in that moment and then seeing it actually happen it was, it was very 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 powerful to see you know um the evolution of kind of these two superstars and how they align. And then you had um, Rough Riders come out and, um, you know, Jadakus and Styles let it off. Um, Styles had this story about, and I, I never really uh, knew the reference to D-Block was, but he had said that when he was in jail in New York, uh, he was in D-Block and, and he and DMX were in at the same time and X was in A-Block. And supposedly those blocks are never meant to like kind of interact, but somehow X made his way over to D block because <laughs> he was always able to, you know, uh, make magic happen. And yeah. he and Styles connected on a music thing and he invited, you know, Styles to come back with him. And it turns out that X had assembled like, um, like a band of musicians in jail and they started like rapping together there. So, you know, pretty amazing. Now, you and I talked about him meeting K solo there, but, um uh, he and, and and styles you know were there too so just to, great to hear stories like that um drag on and eve spoke um eve talked about like just the impact that he had on her and how uh he was one of the most important like figures in her life you know from a professional standpoint and then swizz came on man and swizz was powerful um you know he didn't he didn't give a long uh testimony or eulogy uh i know that um there's the in the private service uh the family service that's happening maybe he, he will speak there and speak more extensively but what really struck me was just how real his talk was about loyalty and and truthfully lack thereof he mentioned that there were a lot of people who were coming out of the woodwork now that x was dead who were not there to support him when he was here and that this whole experience had taught him a lot and how he needs to move differently because he understands that like there are lots of people out there who don't really care about you and you got to rid yourself of those people. Um, that was really very powerful. And then he talked about the need for us to have wills. And I, I guess, you know, you know, we talked about Prince and, and others who have passed away. He didn't have a will. It's, it's amazing to me that these artists who have such like, you know, huge legacies and assets and things, uh, and have all these people around them that they're paying, right? They're paying lawyers to to manage their their business affairs on the on the on the professional side with their music. They're paying business managers to manage their money. They're paying managers to manage their careers and and, and arguably their lives. Like it's really disgraceful when you think about it that these people around these people that are getting paid so much money are not setting up their estates and their, you know to to make sure that if and when they transition and everyone will that their families are taken care of, that their, their, their last will is honored. And, you know, 
eliminate all the bickering and, and back and forth and people coming in and trying to like do shady underhanded things and conniving yeah. children and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's truly disgraceful that, you know, these people who are being paid to do things aren't providing that kind of service because artists are artists, man. They're not true. Typically they're not business minded people. Um, they're, they're not like, you know, you know, people who are super buttoned up in terms of paperwork and stuff like that. They're, they're on this earth to create, but there are tons of people making money around them who are organized, and, and, and I think they should be held accountable. But, uh, but so Swiss was very, very raw in his words, and I, I, th- I thought that was, man, for him to say what he said publicly like that must mean that there's so much nonsense going on. And he pledged that no matter what, that he was going to handle these affairs, make sure that everything was straight with the estate and that his family was taken care of. So it was a it was a powerful moment you know and um but aside from that that was that was really pretty much it man um yeah i mean i love hearing that i think swizz is somebody who in recent years i think of killer mike and david banner and there's a host of of people that their thoughts and words have my attention as much as their music and swizz falls into that especially over the last five years and we've covered a lot of his things on on afh and to know that so many people are tuned in because this is an event and to use that moment without being, you know, without, without it being um, a tangent, but to remind people whether you got $5 or $5 million to have a will. And also I think you and I have spoken about it before, but I think to use that opportunity to remind folks, don't be clout chasers with the deceased. And Jay-Z has devoted several lyrics recently to that. Like, I don't want to end up being a caption, you know, on your page of how we used to be cool. And I think that in our community, in the hip hop community, we need to hear that right now because there's a lot of things I've seen in a really tragic month of people that are inserting themselves into the narrative. And I'm really glad to see Swizz, um, from a top level remind folks that that is not the way and, and that's not really what the purpose of any of this is yeah not at all man not at all so you know i thought it was a really um great send-off that they, they stayed true to the notion of it being a celebration of his life this was not a sad affair uh you know one of his child children you know did cry which you know is totally understandable um but you know people kept it positive and upbeat and really just celebrated his life and legacy, which was, was phenomenal. You know, um, you know, we're, we're recording this, you know, before the, the funeral, which is later on today. Uh, I suspect that'll have a different tone. Um, but, you know, um, I thought this was a great send off for X. Word. So, you know, later today is also the Oscar awards, if I'm not mistaken. And you, you texted me before, some of the events that we've talked about of the last week. Um, and we discussed it briefly a few episodes ago, but you had the opportunity to watch Two Distant Strangers, which is the film starring Joey Badass, produced by Puff and, and some others. And you said it really, um, you know, you were, it compelled you. Can you talk a little bit more about this film? Yeah, it's a short film, 30 minutes. It's nominated for Best Short Film this year uh, in the Oscars. And um, it, like I said, stars Joey Badass. Uh, I, I would say it's one of the best films I saw um, from 2020. Uh, it was unbelievably powerful. And, you know, I, I'll, tell you, I'll say this because, you know, it's, it becomes clear within the first like two or three minutes of what the film's about. 
it, you know, Joey Badass is a, um, seemingly, seemingly like a, I think a young professional. Uh, he wakes up in bed with a, a woman that he had met the night before. And, you know, they obviously, you know, um, connected and, and hooked up. And, um, you know, he's saying his goodbyes to her. He goes down and he runs into a uh, white cop who has a thing for him and it escalates quickly and uh, the cop kills him. And then he wakes up back in bed with the girl. And so it's basically like Groundhog Day. Um, and, you know, Vic Mensa's like down on your luck video. I don't know if you remember that, where yeah. he continues to uh, wake up in a scenario and he's trying to figure out a way to escape the day and get back to his dog, which is the main thing, without this cop killing him. And so obviously it is extremely relevant to what has been going on for the last several decades, but like magnified over the last, you know, eight to 10 years, um, you know, especially uh, in a week where Derek Chauvin was, was convicted of murder of, of George Floyd, it resonated. And, you know, there's two other killings, like within the, that trial period, like, um, including on the same day, just after the verdict, just it's insane. But um, so extremely powerful. And, you know, seeing the, just how inevitable it seems and that there's nothing that you can do to bridge the gap between, um, you know, young black men, uh, who, well, just black people, period, um, being killed by, by police officers. It's extremely powerful commentary, um, extremely well done. Joey shows himself to be, I think, one of the best actors of his generation, um, uh, certainly as an artist and arguably, period. You know, I think that this guy has supreme talent and we're just now starting to scratch the surface of what we're going to get from Joey Badass. Now, it's funny because um, our good friend, the guy introduced us, I, I, won't, I won't name check him, but, you know, the guy who introduced us, he and I, uh, back in the day, uh, I'd say this is like 2013 or so, were working on a script Um for an aspiring rapper, you know, it was, it was, it was about the, the life and times of an aspiring rapper, really kind of giving a behind the scenes look at what that trajectory is. And uh, at the time, I had just interviewed Joey and Pro Era. He was a kid, he was like 13 years old or so, had not gone through puberty. Um, and but there was something about him, I was like, yo, you know, we should think about Joey Badass as uh, as as the star for this because you know, he was it was him, like it was, um, I won't say the role was patterned after him, but he was definitely in that stage of his career. Mm -hmm. There was just something about him that made me think he could pull it off. And then fast forward a few, uh, a few years later, he's cast in Mr. Robot, has a breakout, you know, performance scene stealing like almost every episode, became a real fan favorite in that show. Did you watch that show, by the way? I didn't, but it's on my list. Yeah, uh, great show, and, and Joey is a highlight of the show. And really showed his chops, man. He plays a, a prisoner who's helping uh, the main character with some stuff. Um, and um, you're really, really shown in that, in that film. And the, but to see him now in a role that is very different from his um, rap persona, um, you know, he's wearing glasses, uh, you know, uh, very, very, um, you know, young professional type. Um, it, it's, it's amazing. And then to see like his interaction with the cop and struggles and, you know, the, 
the the pain on his face it's it's an amazing amazing feat so i think the joy badass um is arguably at least as good of an actor as he is a rapper and that's an incredibly high bar for me because yeah i'm a huge fan of joy as an artist but i think his potential is equally as high as an actor and maybe even higher um but you know it makes me wonder like who are some of the best like actor rappers that are out there i mean i'm in west philly right now so we got to start with uh you know, Will Smith definitely is on the list. Um, I would say, you know, people have their thoughts. I've been a big fan of Ice Cube as an actor. And I think at this point, he showed a lot of range in his roles, too. What are some of the others? Okay. Uh, you know, I would say we mentioned one earlier, Tupac. You know, I would say Pac, um, and, you know, you, you alluded to it with that early interview from high school. You know, he went to the Baltimore um, Performance School of Arts with Jada Pinkett, you know, and, and yeah, I think he was an incredible actor. Uh, and, and in a lot of ways, the Tupac that became, you know, the, the thug life guy, you know, the, the ball guy, the death row guy, um, a lot of people say arose from Bishop. Mm. You know, that wasn't his persona before, but the Bishop character in Juice, um, garnered so much attention for him that you know in some ways he may have adopted that persona the way that shock adopted the, the humpty persona so uh tupac i think was one um most deaf you know we had um t dot on uh you know a few weeks ago and he was talking about seeing most deaf on television and and i think it was on the cosby show cosby and, mysteries i think yeah. yeah yeah you know he was obviously a monster's ball um and some other things he was a great great actor and i, I thought he was going to continue on that path too um I, i'd say lauren hill a lot of people so uh <laughs> I, i'll tell you this and I, i'm gonna regret it uh, i'm okay. gonna regret it i know that i'm gonna regret it but <laughs> you can't give me shade because it was due to my grandmother who I love very much. You know, I lived to the age of 95. Um, well, she used to watch soap operas. Okay. And so, you know, after school, I would have to go to my grandparents and wait for my mom to finish working. And so I, I started watching the soaps with her because there was nothing else on. I didn't have, it wasn't an iPad time for anything like that. And so as the world turns, you know, I watched um, for 20 years. Uh, <laughs> was Lauren, I didn't even realize Lauren was on there. Lauren Hill was on um, As the World Turns. She played a, a little girl named Kira. Um, okay. And she was fantastic. That was my introduction to Lauren Hill. That was way before. Food Mine was Sister Act 2, which was still before Blunted on Reality. Yeah, yeah. She was, uh, yeah, Sister Act 2. Um, and, you know, she sang in, in that. It was great, phenomenal. But she was a great actress, man. Like, um I thought she, I thought she could have done it for a long time too. And then the obvious one, people don't even think about this guy as an actor anymore, but that's how he started, which is really ironic, but it's Drake, you know? Um, and I think that's, I'm going to make more fun of you about that than the soap operas. <laughs> you big, the, you big, you a big Degrassi fan? You don't think Drake is a good actor? You know what? I can't even, I've seen Drake mostly play himself. I never got into Degrassi. So I can't really speak on it, but I. You watched ESPYs though that year. Remember the ESPYs that uh, all those shorts that he did with the athletes. We covered them extensively. That's true. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do remember that. I don't know if Drake's merits to me, and I'm not being a hater, are worthy of the company we're describing though. 
You are being a hater. Like, <laughs> <laughs> State Farm commercials? Like, come on, man. Give no, me- man, you know, as a guy named Jake, those State Farm commercials are the bane <laughs> of my existence. You know. That's funny. Oh, I thought I thought it would, I thought I wouldn't have to deal with it anymore now that Jake from State Farm is, is black and, you know, but no, nah, man, I, it's gotten to the point now where if I tell somebody my name, I go by Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So anybody I'm missing at who any other double threats you can think of? I mean, I think I think Ice T kind of, you know, went full on law and order over the last 20, but I I thought that Ice has showed a lot of promise as an actor. Um, you know, I mean there's other people you put LL in there. Yeah, I mean LL's different because I think his roles were um, you know, lighter, but I always thought that he was very believable. And I think you know that ncis now he's been on ncis for years yeah and i mean i was gonna say like i grew up watching um what was it called uh all in the house or whatever he had a he had that that like in the house house. yeah Yeah. and and it got to the point too where i think heavy d was on his way i mean you know with with what he had going on too but i'm really interested to watch the showy film i mean let's not forget short films are not necessarily lucrative i mean that might change in the in the streaming era and that was the other question i wanted to ask you is is um where you know where did you watch it yeah it's on netflix now which is okay opened it up you know we we had both like seen like you said uh, the coverage about it when it was nominated um but neither, neither one of us had seen it at that point um but yeah it's on netflix now and i think it was trending at number one oh wow uh, a couple of days ago so it, the, joey is about to have major shine from this you know especially and i think that it has a good shot at winning the Oscar tonight. Um, and so, but, but yeah, after this, uh, he's going to be a household name as an actor. As that, that would be great. Great to see. Yeah. yeah. So uh, out of that list, who would you say, including Joey is the best double threat um, actor rapper? Hmm. And I mean, I don't mean in terms of commercial success. I mean, in yeah. terms of like actual acting chops merit on both sides. That's a really, really good question. I think of that list, and, and I'm not sure you said her name, but the two that I lean on are Will Smith and Queen Latifah. Um, and I think, you know, both of them are easy to forget their musical chops. I think, you know, you had to be there really, you know, do the knowledge to know. But I think as, as actors, um, both are, are top ranked to me um, and have showed their range more and more with time. And I think the proof is in the pudding on the music tip. Um, what about you? Yeah, you know, for me, it would probably be uh, either Pac or Most Def. Because uh, Most Def, man, like, you look at Monster's Ball, and the dude, the character he plays in that is nothing like, uh, like you know, Yasin Bey, the person that we mm-hmm. uh, the, the artist. Uh, and he is at the top of his game in terms of rapping, you know, there, there are not too many people who can compete. So I'll look at it like that. And then, uh, you know, with, with Pac, same thing, man, like Bishop was, if you look at that high school interview, Bishop was very, very different from who Tupac yeah. actually was prior to that. And, well, and, and it manifested even in the rap too, right? Like his rap was, uh, you know, and same song was much more aligned with that Baltimore, like high school kid. Yeah than like you know the dude on all eyes on me you know so and for as much as people love juice and bishop i mean for me i've always been an above the rim guy 
Um, and I know that those characters, that menacing, you know, and, and by 94, you know, Pac, art was imitating life a little bit. And I know that, you know, Birdie and Bishop, it's not always the happiest ending, but I feel like he leaned into that role more. And even though he's the villain, I've always just loved that performance so much um, in Above yeah. the Rim. Yeah. You know? But that being said, you know, give it five or 10 years, depending on how things shake out. I think if we had this conversation again, Joey might be uh, the number one contender. Like I, I, that this, this film um, put him on that uh, echelon for me. At a time when his rap career is still very much going up, up, up. And, you know, there's other, there's other peers of Joey's that are dabbling in double threats. Um, and, you know, I don't necessarily, it doesn't do us good to say their names, but that aren't necessarily in that position. So Joey's, blowing up in two different mediums which i think is really impressive yeah so, so oh wait other things go ahead oh, yeah. no i mean as we moved into other things you you mentioned most deaf uh yasin bay and um i was really shocked this week because you know he is by all intents and purposes a recluse you know um even uh you know talib on his podcast has spoken about that but apparently dave chappelle who, you know, isn't somebody that's, he does, he's been doing a lot of press and things like that, but not a lot of front-facing media, um, you know, in that way anymore. I mean, more, but him, Yasin Bey, and Talib Kweli have launched a podcast called Midnight Miracle. Wow, that's, that's dope. What's the, what's the focus of it? That part, um, I think a lot of it is, is kind of to be determined, Um but I think with those three names alone, you've got my attention, especially, um, you know, when you and I have covered both, you know, we've covered all three extensively. Yasin Bey rarely speaks. He did that incredible interview um, on Ebro in the morning with Hot 97 a few years ago where he explained, you know, kind of his relationship with music. And I thought that was one of the better interviews of the last five years. And Dave Chappelle, anytime he speaks, I want to listen. And we've spoken a lot about different episodes on this platform, but Quali's, um, you know, People's Party, I, I think Quali in particular is one of the most, you know, prepared and researched people who asks a lot of the questions that I as a hip hop fan and as a fan of comedy and film and stuff want to know. So the idea of these three guys together, that alone, just you, you, you know, like they say, take my money. Yeah, it says that it was recorded during um, his 2020 summer camp. Uh, and that it'll feature conversations punctuated with sketches, impersonations, archival audio clips, and a musical soundtrack and guest and guest interviews, uh, which you know sounds very different than any podcast that I've seen. It sounds like a, an amalgamation of, of podcasts, but that would be incredible. And obviously, these these guys have a history together with. Uh, you know, Chappelle show and, you know, uh, Chappelle's block party and things like that. So there's a real connection there. You know, yeah. Dave is a fan of theirs and, you know, I'm sure vice versa. And, you know, they have hung out extensively and all that. So these should be really cool conversations. Yeah. And I saw that 2020 part. And I mean, you know, from all that I can tell from what social media says, you know, there's still things going on in Yellow Springs, Ohio. Chappelle is still bringing out artists that he admires, creatives that he admires to do things there, kind of create those those socially distanced concerts. So if this takes and it works, there may be more of it. But yeah, I mean, you don't see Yasin's name in the mix too much right now. And I love to see, you know, Dave go back with these two guys. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm here for it, man. 
Yeah, you know, and obviously Kuali has got the People's Party, which is, you know, one of our favorite podcasts. Uh, we had a great um, conversation with DMX, which we talked about, and recently with Big Daddy Kane. So he's taken over kind of that drink. He's moved into that drink champ space of like celebrating legends while they're here, but obviously in a very different kind of context and very different approach to it, you know. Um, so I always find that great. You know, it says that they edited over, um, it says that, um, Chappelle says making a podcast isn't the obvious next move for me, but it's the right one. The Midnight Miracle gives you a look into how me and my friends process the world around us. And I think it will change the way listeners think of what a podcast can be. Mm. So, I mean, Dave, always, always like um, pushing the envelope um, and changing things and playing by his own rules. I I think this is going to be special. Yeah, I feel that too. And on the podcast tip, you know, Obviously, we are a podcast, so it takes something special to, to, to shout it out. But, um, you know, I want to definitely just take one second to give Open Mike Eagle a shout out for his What Had Happened pod. Um, season one, he went with Prince Paul and every episode was devoted to a period of time or a specific album that Paul had produced, including his own, De La Soul, That's a Sonic, Grave Diggers. And now season two is with LP and it's still unfolding every Wednesday, new episodes release. But for me, you know, you talked about De La, a lot of the recent ones have been on Company Flow and Def Jooks, um, the group and the label, a lot of that material is not on the traditional DSPs. And for me, while I was late to the party for Digital Underground being a little bit younger, I lived through Def Jooks. And that was very influential to me as a uh, teenager in early 20 something. So I've been really enjoying it. And Open Mic has is, is become one of my favorite artists um in recent years i just really relate to a lot of what he says and i feel like he's an extension of that underground but his questions with l have been phenomenal and just two gems if i can if i can offer a teaser to anyone lp says that you know def jooks as it gained profile got a cease and desist from def jam um because the names sound alike and def jam wanted to in their original cease and desist that we will take the name of the label and release records under it, which is just a crazy thought. When you think of like 2002 DMX, Jay-Z era Def Jam also having this underground label, but clearly they wanted to compete with the Ruckuses and the Def Jokes. So that was wild. And then the other thing is, um, you know, everyone associates LP with, with Fort Greene, Brooklyn, but he talks a lot about growing up in Tribeca Um, where his mother owned a loft that she turned into a flop house, which would end up being part of the genesis of company flow. And L says that at a very young age, when the 19, I think it was 94 World Trade Center bombing happened, he walked out and interviewed people covered in soot and being wrapped in blankets, leaving the, the trade centers. Just as, you know, I don't know if he was a teenager or whatever, but as a young guy documenting what was going on in his neighborhood and some of that footage and I think Al says he never told anyone this before. Some of that footage appears as background audio in company flow records, which is um, just, just really, really wild on so many levels. So every Wednesday I've been tuning in and, and just kind of reliving a part of my life that uh, I feel close to. Yeah. I mean, that's unreal uh, about that footage. You and Amanda, Amanda Master, who is an extended AFH family, have been a critical part of our success over the years with her pen game um, under the name Bonita and her her, her Gubby also. 
what put you two put me up on an open mic as an artist uh, a few years ago. Really enjoyed him. A very different, you know, kind of artist. Um, always kept it real, real. Uh, but um, uh, you know, about his existence, I think he had the video, uh, didn't he, with Vince Staples, where um, you know they're basically like, uh, you know, uh, making fun of like the the, the the stereotypes of people who are like out there like pretending like they're gangsters and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, he's he's got great concepts. Um, um like that but you put me onto this podcast also and i i caught my first episode last weekend actually with uh it was the the prince paul uh uh, where they were talking about balloon mind state de la sales balloon mind state and just a fantastic interview you could you could tell the rapport that he and paul had he got great stories out of paul there's a comfort level there that leads to great storytelling and I'm excited, excited for him. You know, always great to have these different reflections of and perspectives of hip hop out there. Like I'm here for all of it. Word. So um, something else that cool that happened, I think this actually dropped right after the verses was um, Snoop released his look around video. And there's another artist you and I covered it. I looked for it, but I couldn't find it. You and I covered this. Another artist did this a few years ago. You remember a video? Yeah, I thought it was classified, you know, out of Nova Scotia, but it's not. And I'm trying to think who it is because it was a dope concept. Yeah. Well, 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 oh, was it? Was it? It was Reef, the Lost Cause, maybe. Reef, the Lost. I think you're right. I think yeah. Reef, Lost Cause, and made this video where he put himself into classic rap albums, um, rap covers, and then like kind of recreated it um, in, in video format. And then so uh, Snoop did that and, and took it to a whole different level where he would put himself on the cover of classic rap albums and then uh, it would turn into live action. He would continue rapping as that, that, that character dressed in that, that costume. And so some of the um, looks that he had were LL Cool J's radio, you know, on the back of the cover. He had uh, Kane T's Act of Fool. He had Eric B and Rakim's Paid in Full, Ice T's Power, BDP. Uh, he was Keras one and by all means necessary when he's, you know, got the gun looking outside the window. He was uh, Big Daddy Kane and Long Live the Kane, Easy, Easy Does It, and Too Short, Life is Too Short. And then he did another cue, America's Most Wanted. And he even and and death certificate, and he did um, doggy style too. But it was a real cool concept, paying homage to classic albums that obviously he loved, um, and and opening up to a whole different generation. But did you catch the video? I did, and I thought it was a great concept. I think Snoop, you know, we saw it with his videos with Michael Rappaport going at Trump. Um, he's making some and and some more serious ones too in recent times, and we covered a lot of them on AF Asian. I think that Snoop continues to make music videos on a high high level yeah well um and and really good news uh for you (laughs) (laughs) your boy your boy logic uh you know you you predicted this but apparently he's not actually retired um a rapper not actually retiring no (laughs) and that means that you're gonna get another logic song to play this for Man, <laughs> yeah. so uh but no actually he's got a um he announced a joint project with madlib uh and it's going to be called magic uh m-a-d-g-i-c uh what's the laughter for no nah, man no nah. <laughs> <laughs> 
You know what? You know what? They put the first song out, and I thought it sounded really good. You liked it? Yeah. Okay, it was, it was Boom Bap. Like, it's called Mars Only Part 3. Um, you know, um, kind of stripped down. Logic's had a lot of instrumentation in the song over the years, and this one's more like, you know, just drums and, like, and rhymes. Uh, so you liked it? I did. I did. You know, I, I've never denied Logic can rap. Sometimes his content loses me. I thought this one... This one was good. Um, it came out of nowhere. I mean, for me, I didn't, I would never have guessed. I knew Logic was going to come back and pick up the mic. And he never said, said Logic made a good song. Is that what you're saying? Yo, man, I think I bought his first album. And I certainly, as I've said, I put Logic on Hip Hop DX in like 2011, 2012. So it's all love between me and Bobby. Sometimes I just eye roll at, at his moves. Right. Um, so you're welcoming this on the playlist? <laughs> <laughs> yeah man it knocks you know what and it needs it needs variety um so i'm i'm with it man and you liked it too i did like it i, I don't think i liked it as much as you did but, uh, <laughs> 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 i'm gonna give it a few more listens though but yeah I'm, I, I will say that i'm very i'm a huge logic fan um you put them on dx i put them on bt you know we both have had a hand in making his career which is you know kind of cool i don't know that either one of us anticipated he would blow up like he did yeah. Um, you know, but I've always thought he was talented since the young Sinatra days. I mean, um, I think the first joint that I heard was that I think it was called. Yes, I can't remember. I think it was called yeah. Sinatra. Um, where that was for me. Yeah. Where? Uh, well, no, this is before I even met you. Um, no, 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 no. But that was the first song I heard, too, that they oh, grabbed oh, me. For you yeah. Too. yeah the, the joint, the, the Keep It Real, the Milk Bone. Uh, yeah. The same one. that He's yeah. rapping on the street like, you know, he's got some friends with him. Yeah, yeah, right. Big Alan Jay-Z wrapped over that for their, their freestyle bio, but um, he killed that. And so I've been a big fan since then. And obviously he's been in heavy rotation on our, our playlist because of that. And um, th this one, I got to listen to a few more times to, so I can just kind of catch it. Um, but I'm really looking forward to the project. Madlib, you know, is undefeated in the last several years. Like mm -hmm. the stuff he's done with Freddie Gibbs has been amazing. I really liked his instrumental album that released last year. Uh, this know. year. I mean, it's early this year and it stays in rotation uh, for me too. Yeah. 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 So, you know, I, I think it'll be really cool to hear them because to my knowledge, um, Logic is the rapper with the most com commercial success that Madlib has collaborated with mm -hmm. in his career. I mean, can you think of anybody else? Uh yeah, I mean, Logic's gone number one. I mean, and on an album-to-album -album level where it's full-on collaboration, you know, maybe not. I mean, he's worked with Erica and done some other things with with really A-list artists. But like I said, of, of the youth movement right now, we knew that him and Mac Miller had started making stuff. It had a similar kind of jam their name together title. Um, I, a little bit eye roll at that, but Madlib's done that before. I think he's done that with Guilty Simpson and other folks years before this but um you know from what i've read from egon and other people we may never hear the mac miller stuff so this is huge and if it brings more people into the mad lib chamber i'm with it and like i said and i, I like the single i thought it was cool and i need to listen some more times and see what else comes but uh yeah yeah so anything uh anything else you want to cover I mean, just in quick bits, I, I want to say something I'm excited about. There's a DOC documentary reportedly in the works from the same producers of The Last Dance, which you and I adored. I mean, I think you on a very high level, um, given your your fandom and um, folks that also worked on the G-Funk documentary, which celebrated Warren G. And 
the DOC is a hip hop hero and that doesn't get the attention. So whether it comes or not, that's just something on my radar. I've noticed a lot of our reporting over the DOC over the years is, uh, is picking up right now. So I think folks are, are looking into uh, Tracy Curry's story and I hope it's told on a high level. Yeah, uh, I'm looking forward to that. I mean, I also lived through that era, so know the DLC story really well. And you and I have documented it over the years, too. A lot of people know what happened up until and, you know, through like his accident, tragic accident, which left his voice the way it is today. But uh, a lot of people don't know just how critical a role he played in, you know, Dr. Dre's sound for years after that, um, you know, just as a, as a writer, as a and r person, arguably really just helping to, to map out the chronic and, and other things. So I think having his story told, you know, and the success that he has continued to have since the accident will be really cool to see. Um, so, yeah, yeah, man. You heard any good uh, music this week? Yeah, man. Uh, after last, after you, you um, told me about that Crisis album, this is just a couple of days ago, I dug into that deep and like uh, put like four or five joints on the, on the playlist, our AFH Spotify playlist, um, which I think are amazing. You know, we've got new songs from Dayla and Rhapsody and Buster Rhymes and Pharaoh. Dell's got the scorcher on there too. I saw you put that on the playlist. Yeah, Dell killed it. So you know, so my song of the week would, would be from that. Um, okay. I have the return, um, featuring Way Team, which um, is just unbelievable. Uh, I think I think that's fantastic. But yeah, I, I encourage everyone to check this project out. You know, uh, you were definitely right in recommending that. So that was great. But what about you? And that's cool that that's the song too, because that's where Crisis came from. I mean, that whole Justice League, you know, out of North Carolina, when Little Brother was blowing up, Crisis and Sean Boog were like the next up. And to see him go full circle and do that, I'm really happy for 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 Crisis. My uh, show stopping and it's my song of the week is Better You by Evidence. Um, Evidence put out a song last year called The Unlearning, which I think spent close to 52 weeks on our playlist was just one of those COVID-19 inward introspective songs that just among my most played last year. And on Friday, he came with a new joint produced by Alchemist, Better You. Ev is very much still in this Mr. Mr. Slow Flow chamber. Um, and he said that whatever he did next would be a step apart from the Weatherman series, which this is, I think. But it it definitely finds Evan a vulnerable, reflective place. And he's naming the album The Unlearning. Um, and that's coming June 15th with Rhyme Sayers, you know, from Rhyme Sayers. And already Conway, Boldy James, Fly Anakin, who's on the playlist, as is Conway right now, um, and some other cats. So I'm really excited. I think, you know, Ev, we've talked about it with Royce and master ace and some other people on this podcast evidence is somebody that continues to get better with time and this new single is no exception yeah i found him to be one of the most consistent artists in hip-hop uh, at least over the last several years and you know quietly one of my favorite artists like yeah, there's not a project that he's released in the last you know five years or so where i haven't not only liked it but loved it um and, you know, he always has really interesting concepts and, you know, he has one-liners that, like, just make you think for, for days, like, you know, um, uh, you know, he talks about dance around the meaning of life, but uh, uh, but 
don't, but never ask the co- the question, you know, like, yeah. what is it? Like, I mean, just, uh, yeah, uh, he just, he's just um, a really special artist, man. So like glad to have him have new material and, and really excited to hear these guys. And I, I never do it too, but I, I hit you last night and I think you were going to do it anyway, but I was like, yo, man, consider this one for the playlist <laughs> nudge nudge and uh yeah. yeah man so the playlist is looking as great as it has in a while there's a lot of new music on there marcus precise and mcjenkins and fly anakin and i don't know how to say this artist's name because i'm corny but like pink stifu i don't yeah. you know yeah. um yeah. you know we got a lot of new heat on there so i encourage everyone you know hit the hit you can find it on our page on facebook or, or find it directly on spotify but there's some gems on there Word. All right, man. Well, always a pleasure. I hope that the next one, next several, actually, uh, we can start off on a lighter note. But, you know, once again, rest in peace to Shock G, um, long live DMX, Black Rob, and yo, be safe. You, man. Likewise. Until we do it again. All right. Peace. Peace.